But uh, this morning, I want to encourage you, it's, we find ourselves at the end of 2023, and uh, so I want to be an encouragement to you this morning. If you have your Bibles and want to open up to the, the book of Philippians, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 3, and uh, I'll read that in just a little bit. You know, um, John Hagee, uh, pastor uh, in San Antonio, he said, in America, worry has become part of our national culture. <laughs> you could write a, uh, on many, many American gravestones the epitaph, hurried, worried, buried. I mean, we hurry, we hurry, we hurry, we're worried about stuff, and then we're buried. You know, I read those words for the first time about 15 years ago, and it seemed uniquely suited even more in our current age of anxiety. Um, you know, some of this sounds dated, but an article from the Daily Mail online said that 2012, 2012 would be the most frightening year in living memory. It begins with these ominous words. It says, the dawn of a new year is usually a time of hope and ambition, of dreams for the future and thoughts of a better life. It has been a long time since many of us looked forward to the new year with such anxiety, even dread. I want to say not much has changed uh, in these last uh, 13 years, 11 or 12 years, whatever it is. But today, you know, we read about and we hear about the atrocities of the, of the war in Ukraine with Russia. We, we know Israel is at war uh, we see the expansionist rise of communist China and the uh, possibility of global recession. And you know, if you took a long comparison um, of the year 2023 and you compare that with what was going on in our world in 1932, okay, I know that's a long time ago, but it leads to a very sobering conclusion. And this is the conclusion the lesson of history is that tough times often reward the desperate and the dangerous. From angry demagogues to anarchists to nationalists, uh, from seething mobs to expansionist empires. And so what I want to say this morning is we enter in real soon, probably the most important 12 months in the last 90 years. If our elected leaders and politicians continue to waste their time in petty partisan bickering while disregarding the invasion of our country, enabling the drug cartels as they kill our people and children with fentanyl, and doing very little to hold people accountable who are committing flagrant crimes, then we could easily slip further towards more discontent disaster, and even chaos. No wonder the rest of us feel shaky and uncertain. We feel very uneasy about the road ahead, partly because of the way the world is going and partly because of some of our own personal concerns. You know, I really can't blame anyone for feeling a bit worried right now. Even though the Bible says... Be anxious for nothing. Most of us are anxious about something. 
You know, one writer called Worry, he said this, he said, it's a thin stream of fear trickling through the mind. Someone else said that worry is the interest paid by those who borrow trouble. And to quote John Hagee again, he said, worry is anxiety over the future that dominates the present. Surely this stands as a good description for the fear that grips many hearts around the world. You know, against the prevailing uncertainty in this last year and early into the days of 2024, we have a clear reminder from the Lord in Matthew 6, 27 that says, and who of you by being worried can add a single hour to your life? I mean, think about it. Can you add an hour to your life by your worry? No, but I'll tell you this, your worry may shorten your life because of the stress that it causes and, and it causes the, the health to break down. But Jesus gave us a, um, a, a practical admonition that seems well suited for these days. He says, so do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. We've got plenty of trouble right now, and so why borrow trouble from tomorrow? I want to say there's at least seven reasons why worry is counterproductive. I just want to run through these. The first one is it wastes time that could be spent in better ways. We spend time worrying when we should be spending time in, in better ways. Uh, it focuses, worry focuses on the problem and not on the solution. It causes us to assume responsibility that belongs only to God. It also paralyzes us with fear. It saps our joy, it drains our energy, and it keeps us sidetracked when we could be doing God's will. See, there is no perfection in this life. If we wanna get off to a good start this year, we need to begin in the right place. And our text helps us with the level of personal motivation by revealing the, the heart of our faith. Now, if you read with me in your scripture, whether you flip the pages or scroll it, I'm in Philippians 3, verse 12, 13 and 14. It says this, Paul writes, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I was also laid, laid hold of by, Jesus, by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Loving Father, I thank you for this time and I thank you for your word. Father, I thank you that we had the opportunity to celebrate another year. Father, that we had the opportunity to celebrate Christ's birth again. Father, I know that you are in control of all things. Lord Jesus, I'm thankful for the sacrifice that you gave for, for each one of us, that we could be made right with God that we could have eternal life and that you could be with us here in this life now. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would continue to impress upon our hearts and minds 
your words. And Father, that you would just continue to guide us closer and closer to you. Lord, we love you. I pray that you would be with those who are grieving in our midst. I pray, Father, that you would just lift their countenance, lift their heart. Father, we love you and we praise you. Guide us as we study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, the Apostle Paul, he begins with a very honest and a humble evaluation. He says there in verse 12, the first part of verse 12, he says, Not that I have already obtained it or have already uh, become perfect. And, 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 and there's a refreshing honesty in these words. He's saying, I'm, I'm not there yet. I mean, if anyone had a reason to brag about his accomplishments... The Apostle Paul probably could have done that. I think it would have been him. But that's not what he does. I mean, despite having met the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus. Oh, if we met the Lord Jesus, you know, on the road to Academy, we'd be pretty puffed up by it. He met the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus. And despite having preached all across the eastern Mediterranean region. Despite having been called an apostle by God and, and writing the letters that are inspired by the Holy Spirit, despite all of that that he endured, he does not brag about what he has said or what he has done. Paul wrote this. This is one of the prison epistles. It's one of the letters that he wrote from prison. And so he's in prison and he knows he's probably going to die soon. And he's not bragging about his accomplishments. None of that matters to him. He knows that he is a sinner that is saved by grace. And he says that in, in 1 Timothy 1.15 where he says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. Despite all that he had done, he makes no claim of being perfect or having arrived on his own spiritual journey there is no perfection in this life. But the fact is hard for some people to grasp. I mean, sometimes lately I've, I've had the chance to share a simple truth that is both very simple and profound. You know, whenever we face a difficulty in life, whenever we see something that, that is very hard for us to endure, we must begin by saying, it is what it is. I mean, it is what it is. And, and I, I think that's huge because that's not easy to do when you're faced with something. To say, well, this is what it is. And, and, and you know, we, we would often rather play games. We would often rather make excuses or, or cover up or pretend or ignore the obvious. Or live in a fantasy world. But listen, there's no getting better until you say it is what it is. I mean, you can't get better until you come to grips with reality. I mean, it's hard to admit that your marriage is in trouble. It's hard to admit your career is on the rocks. It's hard to admit that your dreams are smashed or that your children are struggling. It's hard to admit that you're broke. It's hard to admit that you have a problem with alcohol. It's hard to admit that you have a critical spirit. It's hard to admit that you're filled with anger. 
But I want to say there's no getting better until you say it is what it is. Until you face the truth of the situation. And folks, that is true for all the trials of life. First, we begin by saying it is what it is, but that's not all there is. And then, by God's grace, we move on from there. I mean, notice that Paul plainly says, he, he says, not that I have already obtained. One translation said, I do not claim to have already succeeded. J.B. Phillips renders it in English this way. He says, I do not consider myself to have arrived spiritually. See, there's always a danger, especially for those who have been Christians for a long time, where we think, hey, we've got this dialed in, we've got it figured out. It's easy for us to become professional Christians, so to speak, so that you look down on your nose at others who struggle and are struggling and, and you say, I, I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like that man. It's easy to become insensitive to sin because we think we're above it. You know, Martin Luther, he remarked that pride is so deep within us that we must repent of our repentance. It sounds kind of crazy to say that, but he, he meant by that that even our repentance is shaded with pride. In other words, look at me. I'm honest enough to repent of my sins. I'm not like you. I don't cover things up. But sin is so much with us that even our confession contains within it the, the seeds of the next transgression. Were it not for God's grace, none of us would ever be able to stand before the Lord. Amen. See, Jesus is a wonderful Savior, and He is everything that we are not. I read a Facebook status update recently. It said, here's a good thought for the new year. I'm not as strong or as wise as I think I am, but God is stronger and wiser than I can imagine. Folks, this expresses a truth that we all know, but can't quite say out loud. I mean, in our better moments, we know the truth about ourselves. We're not as smart as we think we are. We're not as clever as we think we are. We're not as wise as we think we are. We're not as good as we think we are. And we're certainly not as strong as we think we are. And the only thing that keeps us going is this, is that Jesus is a wonderful Savior and he's everything that we are not. I mean, the supreme purpose of my life is to discover his purpose for me. He is strong. He is wise. He is good. He is holy. He is righteous. He is loving. He is merciful. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And he is all of these things and all of the time far more than we could possibly imagine. I need to move on. That's just point number one. But the Apostle Paul, he, he also goes on and he gives us a, this humble evaluation and he gives us also a holy aspiration. If you look at the second part of verse 12, 
He says, but I press on so that I may lay, to, lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. We have to pause over that phrase, which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. I mean, the whole Christian life can be found in those 10 words. Christ found me. Christ saved me. And Christ has a purpose for my life. Three simple things there. Christ found me, Christ saved me, and Christ has a purpose for my life. And the supreme purpose of my life is to discover his purpose for me. But folks, that takes a lifetime. It's not something we just all of a sudden stumble upon. It takes a lifetime and it involves hard work and concentration. That's why Paul says, I press on. Hard work and concentration It leads to gradual growth in grace and it develops the character of Christ in me. He has this humble evaluation, a holy aspiration, but also a hearty determination. Verse 13 says, Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. Do you notice the, the concentration here that's implicit in the words, the one thing that I do? Here's a little southern fried gold for you that applies across the board. To excel in any area of life, a person must say, this one thing I do. Not these 20 things that I do, This one thing that I do, a single-minded focus in any endeavor generally wins a great reward. I mean, a great artist must say, this one thing I do. A gifted teacher has to say, this one thing I do. A championship athlete must say, one thing I do. A single parent raising her child must say, one thing I do. A student who wants to graduate with honors must say, one thing I do. See, greatness in any area comes with those who can say, with the Apostle Paul, one thing I do. In his case, it meant looking to the heavenly goal of winning the prize. The phrase covers all that God has for us when we finally stand before Jesus Christ and we hear him say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. See, the truth is that most of us would rather say, many things I do. Many things. And it would be true because we are fragmented people. But Paul, an absolute man of action, could truthfully say, one thing I do. So that leads me to ask the question this morning, do you know what you're doing? Do you know what you're doing? You know, maybe it would be good for each of us to look ourselves in the mirror and ask, do you know what you're doing? I mean, we're all good at making lists. 
We make lists, oh yeah. I'm fairly good at it myself. I can make a list as long as my arm and then trick myself into thinking that my list equals my life. Or I can think, as long as I've got a list, I've got a clear purpose. But folks, that's not true. A list without purpose is just a list. It keeps me busy, or it keeps me looking busy, but what good is a list without a larger purpose? See, Paul clarifies that purpose in these two key phrases that he mentions here. He says, first, he says, forgetting what lies behind. Forgetting what lies behind. You know, in, in uh, Charles Braceland Flood's book, Lee, talking about General Lee of the Civil War, the last years, he tells of a time where after the Civil War, Robert E. Lee, uh, he visited a woman who, who showed her him, excuse me, the remains of this grand old tree that was in her front yard at her home. And there she cried bitterly that its limbs and trunk were destroyed by Union artillery fire. She waited for Lee to condemn the North and at least to sympathize with her loss. And this is what he said. He paused and he said, cut it down, my dear madam, and forget it. Cut it down and forget it. It's toast. It's wasted. Let it go. And surely this is a good word for the new year. What are we to forget? Our worries, our fears, our failures, our victories, our defeats, the attacks of the enemy, the praise of our friends. <laughs> we need holy amnesia. We need to forget what has happened to us. We need to forget what lies behind and reach forward for what's to come. Let us lay aside even the accomplishments of this past year, even the claim to fame, our name in the lights, the good things that we think we have done, the stuff that we do to make the world glad that we get out of bed in the morning, all of the things we brag about, all the medals, all the honors, all the awards. You know, at the beginning of a season, football coaches like to say, last year means nothing. And how right they are. If we lost, if we had a losing year, it means nothing. If we won the Super Bowl, it means nothing. Listen, whatever happened in 2023, you have to let it go. I ran across a writer who said we need holy amnesia about our victories and our defeats. And you know what? That strikes me as being entirely biblical. Because as long as we're looking behind us, we can't move forward. Forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward, or as Paul puts it, second point here, pressing on to what lies ahead. You know, when, they, when uh, the, the missionary David Livingstone, he returned from Africa to England, and he was asked, where are you ready to go next? 
He said, I am ready to go anywhere, provided it is forward. Folks, that must be the attitude of every child of God every single day. I'm ready to move forward with where God is moving. No matter where it takes me. See, we like to make our list and, 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 and say, Lord, if you don't mind, I'm busy today. So if you could just initial this at the bottom of the page, I won't bother you anymore today. But folks, that's not how it works. When people ask about the secret of God's will, I tell them it begins in the morning when you get up and you say, let me take the next step with you today, Lord. Let me take the next step with you today. See, if Paul were here today, he would tell us, press on. Press on. You know, several days ago, I, you know, it is the football bowl season, if you don't know that. But I watched a football game, and there was a, a key play that involved uh, a, a guy that was running, uh, stretched out by the goal line. And as he got closer to the goal line, he got swarmed by the, the opposite team and, and gang tackled, if you will. And, and as he stretched out the ball as far as he could possibly stretch it. And, and, and the question was, did the ball, in fact, break the plane of the goal line before he fell to the ground? And at first it was hard to tell under that massive pile of players. But one replay showed that he just barely crossed the plane of the line. Maybe by a matter of inches, he had pushed the ball across the goal line. But listen, that's the sort of effort that wins in football and in the Christian life. Reaching out, stretching forth to meet the goal, to do the thing that God has put on our heart. So we have this heavenly evaluation, a holy aspiration, a hearty determination. And lastly, I would say a heavenly inclination. Verse 14, it says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Oh, Folks, in the spiritual life, your direction makes all the difference. You know, truly, true believers aren't in heaven yet, but they aim their steps in that direction. See, Paul's case that involved both sanctified forgetting, but also a resolve of pushing forward. And Paul, if he, he, he says, I haven't arrived yet, but I'm still climbing. I'm still pressing on. It's not enough just to start well. Folks, we have to finish well. We have to finish well. And let me offer you three questions for you to consider this morning. Number one, what is your goal in life? What is your goal in life? Secondly, why do you get up in the morning? What is your motivation? What is your reason for getting up in the morning? And thirdly, I would ask, why are you still here? If God hasn't taken you home yet, why are you still here? Because he has a purpose for your life. 
See, no one can say with certainty that the new year, what the new year will bring, or even if it will uh, be here, even if we will be here 12 months from now. I mean, people pass from this life and they step off into eternity all the time. We know that we have an appointment with our maker. We just don't know when. But the reality is, is there may be many of us here today that won't be here next year at this time. But that thought should not alarm us in any way. To all of our worries, our Lord and Savior says quite simply, fear not. Fear not. Will things get worse? Fear not. Will I lose my health? Fear not. Will I get cancer? Fear not. Will I keep my job? Fear not. Will my loved ones undergo hardship? Well, fear not. Will my investments collapse? Fear not. Will I run out of money this year? Fear not. Will tragedy strike my family? Fear not. Will my children disappoint me? Fear not. See, we of all people ought to be optimistic as we face a new year. We have a great future because we have a great God. I'm going to invite our worship team to come back up this morning. I just want to say, chin up. Put your chin up, child of God. Stop staring into the soup, okay? Pull those shoulders back. Put a smile on your face. Take your troubles, wrap them up, and take them and lay them at the foot of Jesus. He says to fear not. You know, when we look at the world around us, when we look at the world economy, maybe teetering on a brink of collapse, there's, there's reasons for us all to be concerned. But is it any worse today for us than it was for the Apostle Paul in the first century? I mean, think about it. He's living under a pagan Roman emperor whose values were far from being Christian values. And Paul found many reasons to press on for Jesus Christ. You think of the things that Paul went through. He was imprisoned. He was shipwrecked. He was beaten. He was stoned to death. And they thought he was dead. He, he, all these things had happened to him. He was imprisoned. And, and you think about it. We're not talking about Bell County. We're talking about a Roman prison back in the day. Sure, it wasn't very pleasant. But you know what? He says, press on. Forget what happened and press on. So we launch out with great faith into this new year. Oh, we'll have our share of hard times. But superseding it all is the promise of God who said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Lift up your head. Be of good cheer. 
The Lord is with you. So fear not and press on. Would you pray with me? Loving Father, I thank you for this time. And I thank you for your word. And I thank you for the encouragement that it brings. Father, we don't have to hang on to all those things that have happened to us, the downturns, the victories, the praise of our friends, anything that that we've gone through. Father, we recognize that you are the one in control of it all. And so, Father, we bow before you, asking for more of your grace, more of your mercy, but not hanging on to those things. Father, we look forward to walking with you this next year, even to celebrating the goodness of our God. Father, I pray that you would raise our countenance, raise the countenance of your people. Help us return to the joy of our salvation. And Father, that we would be salt and light in a dark and bland world. And Father, that others would know that we belong to you because of our love for one another and because of our love for you. Father, thank you for loving us first. Guide us as we respond to you in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, my invitation this morning is very simple. If you don't know Jesus and have never confessed him as your Savior and Lord, All I can do is encourage you to do that. To put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ. If you want to do that this morning, I'm going to be standing right down here next to my wife. You come. Maybe you're here this morning and you're a believer and you've never followed the Lord in baptism. If you want to follow the Lord in baptism, you come. Maybe you're here and you're looking for a church home. If you're looking for a church home, this is a good one. And I want you to understand that God doesn't have any homeless children. He prepares for us a place. If you need a church home, this is a good one. Maybe you just want to take those cares, those worries, those fears, wrap them up and lay them at the foot of Jesus. You just want to come and pray and seek the Lord this morning. We need to begin this year in the right place. So I invite you to do that. As we stand together and sing, you respond to how the Holy Spirit guides you. Would you do that? Would you stand with me?